What's going on, everybody? Happy Monday morning, and welcome to the go-to podcast with the best advice. This is In Their 20s with your host, Landon Campbell. For episode 108, we spoke with Laura Hodgson. She's the CEO and co-founder of Now. Now is a very exciting fintech startup which enables small businesses to grow through its invoice payment solution. This episode is all about how to start a small business in your 20s, how to get it off the ground, how to scale, how to find the right customers and employees. Laura has started multiple businesses and also co-wrote a book with her best friend and business partner, Stacey Abrams, called Level Up. In this episode, she shares her hard-earned wisdom, advice, and tips for young entrepreneurs that she wishes she got as a first-time business owner. Before we dive in with Laura, here are the top three things that all 20-somethings should know about. All right, with item number one on our list, we need to talk about the beef between Instagram and the Kardashians. Instagram has started to roll back some changes to the app after user backlash. If you haven't been noticing, Instagram has been rolling out some new features over the past few months, including more videos, more suggested posts, and a lot of these have not been popular. Both Kylie Jenner and Kim Kardashian shared stories on Instagram this week saying that they do not want Instagram to turn into a TikTok. And this is a common mistake that a lot of platforms make. You know, they constantly look for ways to iterate and evolve. They start to copy other features from other platforms. Stories, for example, started on Snapchat, and then we saw all these apps take them. Same with social audio, really getting big on Clubhouse. We saw a lot of these apps experiment with social audio. Video is another big thing that we see the popularity of TikTok. A lot of these big apps and companies are also starting to realize that they need more videos on their platform if they want to compete against TikTok. But hopefully, Instagram understands that its loyal user base doesn't want that. Next point on the list, Mr. Beast tops 100 million YouTube subscribers. Mr. Beast is YouTube's highest earning creator. He brought in $54 million last year. His YouTube empire spans 18 channels, including the main Mr. Beast page, Mr. Beast Shorts, Mr. Beast Gaming, Beast Reacts. All told, he has more than 215 million subscribers and has gotten more than 30 billion views to date. So congratulations to Mr. Beast continuing to kill it and also diversify in such a great way. And the final point on our list today, the city of Miami is launching 5,000 Ethereum NFTs with time, MasterCard, and Salesforce. These unique NFTs are being designed by 56 different Miami artists. They're all about giving holders the ability to unlock unique experiences. This is being spearheaded by our good friend, Mayor Francis Suarez, who we had on the In Their 20s podcast. Excited for all the cool things that he's working on in the city of Miami, and we will be paying close attention to this initiative. All right, everybody, those are the top three things that all 20-somethings should know about. Awesome. We're going to dive right in with Laura Hodgson to hear about her best advice for people in their 20s. Before we do, on August 4th, I will be giving a TED Talk, my first ever TED Talk in the iconic Wrigley Field. Can't wait to share more updates, share the video, and also share my thoughts on how people should rethink their 20s. All right, everybody, here is episode 108. 
again, thank you so much for joining the In Their 20s podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Very excited to dive in and learn more about how people my age, our listeners, can start a business. But before we do, we do have to go back a little bit. I want to talk about your days at Georgia Institute of Technology. Uh, what is one daily routine that you developed while in college that you can say you still use today? Yeah, you know, I had a very unique experience because I was a scholarship athlete at Georgia Tech. Um, I, I had the oddest combination of being an aerospace engineering student and a heptathlete on the track team. Um, I can guarantee you there are not two of those. Um, <laughs> but I think what was really beneficial to me, and at the time I thought it was um, restrictive, but coming in as an athlete, my schedule was very scripted. I still remember it. I had eight o'clock calculus. I had nine o'clock study hall. I had 10 o'clock chemistry. I had 11 o'clock study hall. And I just kept thinking, why are they sort of filling our time with these study halls when I could, should have the flexibility to do what I want? But I think it was so invaluable because it taught sort of a disciplined approach to your schedule. And what I loved that they did is they showed that if you can intermittently sprinkle time to sort of take a break and review what you had done that day, you can be even more productive. So, you know, a typical student would just go to class. And if you had a free time, you'd go to lunch and hang out with your friends. And then in the evening, you would try to tackle like all of your studies. But because it forced me to have like a little study hall in between my classes, and to kind of sit down and say, okay, what did I just do in that class? It allowed me to, I think, do a really good job at like logging my day. And I still do that today. Don't tell my college coach because they would be really happy. But I still, you know, between meetings at the office, I try to put little spots where I can kind of sit down and digest what I just did. Because otherwise you're running from meeting to meeting and you've got all these ideas running through your head. And by the time you get to the end of the day, you forget them all. Yeah, very well said. Retaining information is super important. And you're right. There's so much going on in a day. We're running all over the place. We're working hard, which is good. But if you're not right. retaining that information, then it's just not even worth it. So right. I've been doing a similar practice where before I start my day, I literally block down specifically what I plan on working on during that day. Um, and then at the end of the day, I get to check off the things that I did do. Sometimes I don't get to touch everything. That's totally fine. Yeah. But just knowing um, that and now I can even add a new um, I love your version where like actually going in between the meetings and marking down the things that I'm working on and things that I completed really important. Even if you're just writing notes, like I just did this, These, this long meeting. These are the three top things that I write. Um, you can write that down it and save it. I think it also helps you, especially when you're just starting your career, doing that helps you figure out the things you like and the things you don't. So I often tell people I'm a big to-do list person. If I do something in a day and it wasn't on my to-do list, I write it down just so I can cross it out because it makes you feel good. But if you look at your to-do list every Friday, you will always have the same things left on it. It's the things you don't like to do, which is why if you find time on Wednesday, you don't do those things. You fill that time with the things you like. So, you know, for a lot of people that say to me, I don't really know what I like or what I'm passionate about, look at your to-do list every Friday. You always leave the things that you don't like. And I will let you in on a secret. Sometimes the things that you're really good at and the things you like are not the same. 
So for example, I'm an aerospace engineer. I am really good at spreadsheets. I don't like them. And so they're always on my list on Friday because my personality wants me to spend more time with clients and developing ideas and, and, and ideating and brainstorming. But my skill set is also good at spreadsheets. So the key is to find people on your team that like the things you leave till Friday. I love that. Um, that's really, really important for when you're building a team. So we can dive right into that, though, because I understand after graduating, you spent some time in Chicago where I film my podcast and where I live now. So that's awesome to hear. Um, when did you start to actually develop like the entrepreneurial mindset, like the idea that you wanted to start your own business one day? Because after we graduate, we're always, of course, you know, tend to working at, you know, large companies, get our foot in the door, start to network. Um, but taking that risk into starting your own thing can be very scary. So we're going to really dive into a lot of that today. But when did you yeah. start to develop those ideas that I might want to own my own business one day? So, you know, the interesting thing is I don't remember being that kid that thought I have to be the boss. I have to have my own company. But in hindsight, I actually did start when I was a kid. When I was in third grade, all of the girls in school had these really cool hair barrettes with ribbon on them. And my family couldn't afford those, but my mother said we could probably make them. So we went down to the craft store and I bought ribbon and I thought, well, if I'm going to weave the ribbon in, what about adding beads? You know, so like I added a little bit of bling and before you know it, all the girls in my school were like, oh, we like yours better. Like those are way better than the other ones that we bought. And so I started paying my sister to help me like braid ribbon into, into hair barrettes. My friends started working for me. Every week I would go back to the craft store. And finally the lady was like, why are you here every week? What are you doing with all of this ribbon? And so I showed her my hair barrettes and she said, oh my gosh, I could sell those for you. So she started selling them. And I still remember it was, an, it was October because she ordered a couple hundred pair of red and black and a couple, couple hundred pair of yellow and black because the Georgia, Georgia Tech football game was coming up. And my mother promptly informed her that the business was closed because I had homework to do. And so I still tease my mother that she really killed my first business because of homework. But back then, people didn't talk about entrepreneurship as something that a young person could do. The understanding was that you would go to college, you would work a career, and then once you became an expert in something, you could maybe start your own business. But I think today, everyone has, you know, the realization that you can start something when you're younger and you don't have to be an expert to have a great idea. In fact, I think your best ideas come from noticing things, not from knowing things. So giving ourselves the flexibility to notice opportunities, you don't have to be an expert to start a company. You can surround yourself with experts. You just have to have a vision. And so you know, when I came out of college, I didn't think about starting my own company. I had offers to, you know, go work at NASA and go do a PhD. And I ended up going to Japan and working for a while. And it wasn't until business school when one of my professors, I was trying to decide between a job at McKinsey and a job at this startup. And he said to me, like, why not try the startup? Like you've never been in a startup world, see what it's like. And I just fell in love. And I, I mean, I was really good at helping other people start their companies. So even then I didn't think I had to start my own. Um, but what really 
prompted me to start my own first business seriously as I became a mother. I had my son. Totally. I love that. Wow. Looking at that uh, hair braid uh, company, that could have been a multi-billion dollar <laughs> could company. Have been. It's okay. You're doing amazing things today. So forget about that one. Um, but I love the uh, insights that you just shared there. And speaking of insights, you made a wonderful point that the best entrepreneurs do not need to know everything. And I, I love that you said that because nobody knows everything. And I don't even trust people who act like they do, but that's a very uh, helpful <laughs> thing of you to say. But you do need to have a unique insight into sure. a world, you know, view or something that you think that you can bring to the table. So I love that. Um, looking deeper into that, what would you say are the top three qualities? Um, some of them are going to come naturally, but some of them I hope can be learned. The top three qualities that an entrepreneur in their 20s can have and should have. Yeah. So I think um, one quality is curiosity. Mm -hmm. I think you have to love the unknown. I think you have to be enthralled with questions. And I really do think the key to all innovation is finding the right question, not knowing the answer. So being willing to ask those questions. I think the second quality, which kind of comes out of the first, is you have to be really good at asking for help. And I still remember my very first boss in my first job out of college, um, he allowed me to do present. He allowed me to do things I had no business doing. I mean, I did not have the skill set, but I still remember what he said to me one day. He said, I'm going to let you run as far as you can, as long as you show me, you know, when to ask for help. And I thought, what an incredibly insightful and quite scary challenge, quite <laughs> to be honest. Um, because what he was telling me is the sign of a great leader is being willing to say you don't know everything and to ask for help. And all too often, we're so focused on showing everybody how good we are that we don't ask questions. So I think, you know, the first is curiosity. The second that makes a great entrepreneur and a great leader is the willingness to ask questions and sincerely be open to the answer, not just ask them because you think you know the answer and you want to show everybody how smart you are. Um, and then I think the third and, and maybe the most important is having empathy, because one of the things that drives me crazy is when people say it's not personal, it's just business. I have news for you. There's no such thing. That's BS, because all business is personal. If there weren't people, there would be no business. And so I think really having empathy for the people that you surround yourself with, whether that's your employees, your partners, your investors, your clients. Um, the reality is if you don't understand people, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how smart you are. You can have the greatest idea in the world. And if you don't understand the users, um, it's just good for an interesting flip chart. Of course. I love those three points, making sure to stay curious, um, you're able to ask questions and having strong EQ, which is something that a lot of people yeah. don't always talk about. They always talk about needing to be the smartest person in the room, which is important. IQ is very important too, but if you aren't able to actually understand people, um, that's going to really bog down your hiring practices, your customer acquisition, a lot of issues come yeah. with that. So I love those three points. So I'd love to know, dive into some of these entrepreneurial journeys of yours. I want to stay like within the timeline. So we're going to get to Nourish, yeah. we're going to get to now, but I believe you started another company uh, that I want to talk about as well 
called the insomnia group. Um, <laughs> for those watching the video now, you can see the book level up. This was a book and sorry, this is a company that you started with your good friend, Stacey Abrams, um, and then created the book level up to talk about it. Um, if you were to kind of give us like the, uh, few minute, um, explainer of the book for those who haven't read it and some of the biggest key lessons that you learned about starting this business, uh, which you started, you know, if I believe correctly or understand correctly, uh, during the nighttime, which is why I was yeah. called insomnia group. Um, so that means that you wanted to start this, but you have to work extra hard to get it yeah. off the ground, which is difficult because you have the full-time role and then also want to start something else. So what did you learn during these moments? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest learnings with insomnia, and I think it's, it's a disservice we do to a lot of would-be amazing entrepreneurs, is we create this urban myth that to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to love risk. You have to be willing to live in your garage and eat macaroni and cheese, leap off a cliff, build the wings on the way down. And you know what? That's just not true. I don't love risk. Stacy always says she loves a good paycheck. And by propagating that myth, we discourage many people who could be amazing entrepreneurs who think, well, I don't love risk. I must not be an entrepreneur. And so one of the things we learned with insomnia is I had a full-time job. Stacy had a full-time job. We started working on insomnia at night because neither one of us had the ability to throw caution to the wind and give up our income and hope that it worked. You know, we needed to, I had a new baby in the house, Stacy cares for her parents. And so the reality is most entrepreneurs do not start in their garage with ramen noodles. You can have a career, you can have a job, you can be learning as you go, and you can use that time in the evening and on the weekends to pull your ideas together, get with people to try to refine that minimum viable product. And what we did is as Nourish, which was the idea we were working on, started to take shape, we sort of dialed down our daytime job, right? We, we, we went into consulting. Insomnia was really project-based, so we could not take the next project or we could make the project less time-consuming. Um, and so really, it wasn't until Nourish had product and its first customer, and we knew we had revenue that we could start to pay ourselves, that we closed Insomnia. Um, so again, most people don't just take a wild, crazy chance and hope they land. I love the points there. Everybody's entrepreneurial journey is different. There's no yeah. one path to entrepreneurship. I mean, the garage story, it's such a fabricated, I spoke with Steve Wozniak on the show and he told me that that was fake. I mean, it's just <laughs> such a commercialized, like you need to start it like this and there's it's no sexy. Way it's good it. for television. Exactly. It's only good for television. So I love that you're pointing that out that no, everybody's journey is different to finding success. So you still need to have um, and would hopefully have those three qualities that you mentioned, curiosity, being willing to ask questions and uh, really being a good listener. But I mean, how you do it, where you do it, if you need to go to grad school or not. I mean, there's a lot of things that sure help, but I think everybody's journey is different. So now let's dive into Nourish. Um, this was a patent line of spill-proof bottled water for kids and ready to serve bottles for babies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we started Nourish, um, and that's a perfect explanation, a perfect example of not being an expert, you know, neither Stacy nor I had any background in water or consumer packaged goods or anything like that. But I think what was interesting is we quickly realized that the idea that you would go out and just sort of raise venture capital right off the bat, you know, here again, when we went out to talk to potential investors, they said, well, you know, you're not a software startup, you're not SaaS. And 
I just remember thinking to myself, okay, I am standing in Atlanta, Georgia in the shadow of the Coca-Cola tower. I think you can build wealth with a beverage company, but you know, the, the flavor of the month, if you will, and sort of that herd mentality of investors was that they were only interested in software startups. And so we were really kind of treated like second-class entrepreneurs. So we cobbled together just some capital from our, you know, friends and family, just enough to get the first molds made so that we could make a couple of, of cases. And we started selling to small retailers and most retailers just gave us a credit card, right? They were buying like five cases and it was a couple hundred dollars. Um, and it wasn't until we got a year into the business and we got our first big order from Whole Foods that now we had truckloads to ship, right? It wasn't cases. There was a lot more zeros on the end. And this idea, we thought, oh, well, they'll just give us a credit card, but they didn't. Instead, they said, we want an invoice with net 30 terms. And I thought, Ooh, well, I don't love this idea that I'm going to ship you a truckload of product and you're going to pay me in 30 days. It's like the old Popeye's cartoon with no one your age would remember. Um, but, I, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's the cost of doing business. So I went to my suppliers and said, look, if they're not going to pay me for 30 days, will you let me pay you in 45 days? And I thought, how brilliant am I? I figured that out. Um, but the reality is when someone says they're going to pay you in 30 days, it's just a suggestion. It doesn't actually mean you're going to get paid in 30 days. Net 30 could be net whenever you feel like it. And so the 30th day came and a check did not arrive. And so now I'm losing sleep at night because I can't pay my suppliers, not because my business isn't good, but because my customers are essentially using my money for free for almost, in some cases, I didn't, it, I didn't get paid for three or four months wow. and no small business can wait three or four months to get paid. It makes you a free bank. None of us want to be a free bank. And I just, you know, honestly, what I thought, I thought I messed up because I think being the entrepreneur is, is often a very lonely position. Mm -hmm. And I still remember the day that I dropped my son at daycare. I sat in the car, I put my head on the steering wheel and I cried because I thought I had messed up. I thought I'd negotiated poorly. I was like, why didn't I know this was going to happen? And then I happened to be talking to my supplier and he said, oh, Laura, everybody has this problem. You just have a working capital issue. Go get a line of credit. And I thought, whoa, time out. What do you mean everybody has this problem? If everybody has this problem, the existing solutions must not be very good. I love hearing that story because now it totally makes sense why you launched now, um, because you had the challenges, you know, with yeah. previously being a serial entrepreneur, dealing with those payment issues. And now you wanted to help other people you know, deal with similar challenges after finding out that this is a common thing. Um, and a lot of people are going through, not just yourself, because, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, it's super annoying for you to be going through it, but now to like understand that other people are dealing with it. It's awesome that you started this new company to help other people grow their businesses um, in a much more efficient way. So let's talk about what now is now account. This is an invoice payment solution that redefines how and when businesses get paid. Um, I want to talk about what the journey has been like creating this company. Some of your happy customers, I mean, that you've been able to deliver so much value to, and then I'll kind of let you hear the last question. Um, right now, um, because you are continuing to grow your team. Um, what is your advice for the young people that you now bring on to now? Yeah, well, you know, the journey with now, I, I think the journey with any business, it's never what you think, right? We all, we all have this image in our mind of a straight, a straight path. Nobody has a straight path. All of our paths look like somebody tripped and spilled spaghetti on a plate. And, but you know what, if you put that in context, 
that's the beauty of it. That's the fun of it. And if you, if you get freaked out by the fact that your straight path took a couple of turns, you're kind of missing the point because those turns provide opportunities, opportunities for discovery, opportunities for, you know, um, product extensions, new customers. And so, you know, when we started now, I can guarantee you that the finance professor I had at Harvard Business School would fall out of his chair if he knew that I was running a finance company because I was the engineer in the back of finance class that was flipping through the dictionary while the Wall Street guys were using words I didn't understand. And so, but you're right, like we started now account not because we were experts in finance, but because we experienced the problem. And the reality is if we were experts in finance, we never would have come up with this idea because we would have been too smart. We would have known too much. We didn't know enough to not ask stupid questions. They're the best. So, you know, when we realized that all small businesses had this issue of waiting to get paid and essentially growing out of business, we were sitting at lunch one day and it occurred to us that restaurants never wait to get paid. And I thought that was so unfair. But the reason they don't wait to get paid is that you either hand them cash or you hand them a credit card or Square or some payment system. And when they use that credit card, when they accept your card, they get paid immediately. It's not a loan. It's not a line of credit. It's not factoring. It's not even on their balance sheet. And if you don't pay your credit card bill, that's not their problem, right? But in the world of business to business where I'm shipping truckloads to Whole Foods or their distributor UNFI and I'm waiting four months to get paid, why? Why should I have to wait four months to get paid? So because we didn't want to borrow money and we didn't want to do all this financy factoring type stuff, we just created a payment system that allows small businesses to get paid immediately and it feels like taking a credit card. So you just get your revenue immediately and you pay a 3% fee for that, just like you would pay if you took someone's visa. And so what we realized is if you can do that, if you can allow small businesses to get paid immediately without borrowing money or using factoring, they can grow exponentially because they're using their own revenue to fund their business, which allows them to retain ownership and not have to give up equity. And it keeps them from turning to risky loans and factoring. So, you know, really we were just trying to solve our own problem initially, but Stacy and I have always believed that if you have a problem, you don't just solve it for yourself. You have a responsibility to solve it for everybody that comes behind you. And so that's why we started now. And, you know, every day I'm amazed at the clients that we have are the heroes of our economy. They do the coolest things. And I was just sharing on a panel earlier today, a gentleman that we met, a minority owned business, and he's in Atlanta. And a couple of years ago, the Super Bowl came to Atlanta. And we had met him because he did a lot of work for the Atlanta airport. And he went to one of the conferences where they were talking about the bids, like the projects that they were going to give primarily to local black businesses. But the problem was they wanted net 60 terms. And he, he said the whole room was like, oh my gosh, like I can't wait 60 days. And he said, wait a minute, I have a now account. I'm getting paid immediately anyway. So he raised his hand and he ran to the front of the room and he said, I'll do net 60. In fact, I'll give you 90 days if you want it. So not only did he get the contract, 
but he was then named minority supplier of the year by the NFL. And he has like a 10 year deal where he gets to do every Super Bowl. Wow. And so he called me and he was like, you're my secret weapon for sales. I was like, what? We're a payments company. And he was like, no, you gave me the confidence to take that big order, knowing that I could pay my employees and my suppliers. And just the confidence to do that allows me to grow because small and small business should be a temporary status, not permanent. I totally agree. I love that a solution like now exists. And it's interesting that, you know, no one was building uh, something like this before because I feel like it was just an issue that everybody was dealing with, you know, yeah. saying, okay, like if I have to deal with this, someone else is dealing with it. So I love that you actually said, you know what? No, this is BS. We shouldn't have to deal with this as small <laughs> business owners and as business owners, it's not helping us be efficient. Um, we need to fix our own problem with this. And then also you wanted to help yeah. other people. So I think that that's so powerful. Uh, Laura, one final question for you, because so many people listen to my podcast for the business advice, but I've been hearing a lot of people um, in their twenties, you know, wanting more of the personal advice as well. Um, questions like, I want to be a small business owner. I want to own a company, but when do I have kids um, as well? Like, you know, and do I need to like kind of push yeah. a lot of these personal things, you know, away in order to do this? How can I be successful? So what advice do you have for that 20 something that's struggling with those questions right now? Because you've clearly done it all. I mean, you've been able to have, um, you know, your kid but yeah. then also become super successful. So what is your advice uh, for our listener? So I have two pieces of advice and, an and one of them is another urban myth. You know, you can tell I like to like bust yes. all these myths. So people come up to me all the time and say, I really want to start my own business, but I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to have kids. We have got to remove the myth yes. that for you to be an entrepreneur, you have to give up everything in your life for your business. And the reason I think that's wrong is if you are willing to give up the most important thing in your life, if you're willing to give up your family, your children, your parents, your friends, for a business, I would never invest in you because mm -hmm. you don't make wise choices. I want to invest in somebody who prioritizes their life, who puts mm -hmm. the important things important. Because if I'm going to be your investor, I want you to know what's important. And that doesn't mean put your child off to the side for an extra meeting with me. That's mm -hmm. just wrong. And here's the thing, the people who make that myth are the people who made those bad choices and they want company. They're miserable and they yes. want company. So don't give them the company. Yes, you can, not only am I a mom, am I a CEO? I mean, I'm team mom, I'm room mom, you name it. I am, in, you know, I, I am involved in all of my son's sports, school activities. I even started a charter school in Southwest Atlanta wow, um, to help a, you know, a neighborhood that doesn't have good schools. And so long ago, you know, people always say, can you have work-life balance? The answer is yes, but it sucks. You don't want it. Because work-life balance is like two people on a playground seesaw. Mm -hmm. If everything is equal, that means everything is average. And I have no desire to be an average mother, an average wife, or an average CEO. So the focus is not on balancing things, it's on optimizing. When I am with you for a board meeting, you have my undivided attention. I am not checking my text messages. I am not looking at my phone, but you better be prepared because you have all of me. But when I leave, someone else has all of me. Yes. 
And so I just find that honestly, I'm a better CEO because I'm a mother and because I have a family, because it allows me to prioritize things. And then the second piece of advice I would give is really kind of what drove Stacy and I to write the book in the first place. I often tell my employees, look to your left, look to your right. If the people on either side look exactly like you, move, like physically move. Because even though we have this incredibly diverse company, even within that diversity, sometimes we find little niches of that lack diversity, right? Like within the company, we'll find people that kind of cluster together with people they're comfortable with. And, you know, when Stacy and I met, it was very clear that we are very different. We come from different backgrounds. We have different life experiences. And we wanted to write the book because as we see the world becoming so polar, And this whole mentality that if you're not with me, you're against me, that's just wrong. I mean, people are beautifully diverse and it's that diversity that drives innovation. If we all retreat to the comfortable areas of people that are just like us, then we're going to suffer, not just socially, but economically, we're going to suffer because I love surrounding myself with people that are totally different than me. Laura, that was so powerful. That's the clip for the interview right there. I loved everything that you said there. And I totally agree. Laura, I just want to say thank you so much for joining the Interface podcast. I learned a lot from you. I'm very lucky to have these interviews every week because I learned so much. And I'm just really uh, fortunate to be able to share your advice and the advice of so many amazing people um, with my audience. So thank you so much. Thank you.